Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that, or you didn't, because you're new to the show, in which case, hi, welcome, glad you're here. On Crazy Money, we explore the connection between money and happiness through the lens of our guests' expertise or money journeys. And today, we're going to explore through a combination of both our guest Laura Delazana's money journey and her expertise. You see, she is an expert on the science of happiness and an instructor at Stanford University, and we'll get to her conversation in just a minute. One of the things we talk about in this conversation is how to find joy in the everyday, how to not wait to be happy based on events that are outside of our control or or our event base, like falling in love or winning the lottery or taking the perfect trip, rather how to mine happiness in your daily life. And what could be a better reminder during week nine of quarantine to take a look at how we're doing and saying, you know what, these circumstances are what they are, and I'm going to find joy in today. I think that's important because, well, I think a lot of people out there aren't admitting that they're scared, lonely, depressed, worried about the future. Fill in the blank with an adjective of thing you'd rather not be, because I don't think it's an ideal time for anyone. If you're okay, it's okay. And I think there's a lot of people, I know I started out, I started out pretty strong with a lot of, you know, like, okay, we're going to get through this, yeah, rah, rah, rah. And then, you know, slowly it became, hey, today's going to be all right. Today's going to be all right. And I'm no worse off by taking that attitude. I really believe I'm not. I think everybody should be okay with being okay and be okay with being realistic. When I see other people out there that are like, I'm great, man. It's great. It's fine. But I don't see what the big deal is, man. Everything's fine. Yeah. Like my kids finish school at 930 every morning and then watch TV till bedtime, but that's fine. They're going to be fine. You know, and they will be fine, but you know, you shouldn't rational. Hey, last night I watched four hours of the 2010 Winter Olympics. That's totally normal. I do that a lot. Big, big curling fan. Yeah, big into the history of curling. How's my wife? She's, oh, she's great. Yeah. She spends her days plotting my death, but man, we're good. Yeah, no, no, no. We haven't had any fights in the last eight and a half weeks. None. No. Kids are having drive through birthday parties. That's totally normal. For real. Yeah. The Supreme Court is hearing cases in their pajamas, but that's, yeah, that's nothing to be worried about. Come on. Massage and tattoo parlors are open, but bookstores are closed. That doesn't indicate an imbalance in the universe or anything. What, just because gas is cheaper than water, you want me to think that's a harbinger of the apocalypse? No, no, everything's fine. I'm good. What do you mean? I'm, I'm, am I healthy? Absolutely. I mean, I'm eating six meals per day and drinking like it's the last week of college, but you know, it's fine. It's good. It's going to, it's just a blip. It's a blip. Yeah. So. I think we're all losing our minds just a little bit and you know, that's all right. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Uh, don't oversell your happiness. Just, you know, be realistic. Have a good day. Hope you're having a good day. It is a great day to be alive and it's a great day to remember to find joy in the little things. And that's one of the things we're going to be reminded of during my conversation with Laura Delazana. Hey, that was a pretty smooth segue, eh? Laura Delzana, PhD, is a Stanford University instructor, international speaker, author, and expert on the science of happiness. Her mission is to help others thrive in life and work. She delivers practical, interactive, science-based trainings and inspiring keynotes. She consults with executives and employees at top corporations like Google and Facebook, which I hear is a great place to work, to help optimize performance. 
On today's show, we talk about the science of happiness, the relative importance of income and feeling valued at work, and how to mine joy out of the everyday. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this conversation with Laura Delazana. So practice is a key piece because we're developing mental habits here and Mine loves habits, good habits, bad habits. It's parsimonious. It's very prudent use of resources. Ask your mind a question, not what went wrong, what went well. (laughs) Right. What went well. And what that does is recalibrates our radar. The question you ask your mind is the answer it will find. And the second part of this question is, and what is my role or what was my role in creating this situation outcome? So that part adds the real punch. It increases a sense of self-efficacy that I have influence over my experience. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Laura Delazana, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm very happy to be here today. So, Laura, I read in a, one of your bios, one of your many bios online, that described you as a positive psychologist. What does that mean? Positive psychology is the science of well being. So, it's looking at how we can move from sort of a baseline or a neutral place to flourishing and thriving in our life. I like to think of it as whole life success, where we're flourishing in our personal life and relationships and our own psychology and internal well-being. We're also flourishing in our work and our contribution and the way that we show up in the world based in science and used in that scientific rigor, but really focusing on the positive side of the equation rather than traditional psychology, which looked more at how to bring people up to neutral. This looks at how to elevate So does well-being mean that I'm just happy all the time and I'm never in a bad mood? Yeah, that's one of the misconceptions of well-being and and happiness in particular. Oh, good, good. That I'm okay then, that I'm not not broken. It just means that we're human. Yay, good. A human, that's what we want. I think of happiness and well-being as full-spectrum living, full-catastrophe living, where we're living a full expression of our lives. We get the full range of the human experience, which includes joy, cheer, pride, awe, love. It also includes grief, sorrow, despair, anger, rage, disappointment, and sadness. Well, how do you know if you have enough of one and not enough of another? Barbara Fredrickson, who's a prominent positive psychologist at University of North Carolina, describes this as happiness is simply having more positive emotions on average than negative emotions. So this is subjective well-being. No one can tell you if you're happy enough, if you have a high enough level of well-being, but it's a subjective assessment and sense that you're flourishing in life. So you know some indicators that maybe the well-being could be elevated is If you're noticing moments where you're going into downward spirals of negativity or feeling stuck, if you're adding to ordinary pain. So we're going to experience pain in life. That's part of uh, just life, right? It's it's, um, inherent. But if 
we're adding to it where it gets to the point of suffering and misery and sort of a dog pile of being anxious about being anxious and, hmm. and sad about being sad, then that's a moment to stop and question how could we elevate our well-being. And I'm going to keep those secrets that you've come up with until the end of the interview, just to keep everybody tuned in. So before we get there, let's step back and tell me, how did you get into this line of work? Well, it's been my deep personal journey with a view and a belief that we all can live a a life of flourishing that could be quite extraordinary. And why not? We have this beautiful life to live that's challenging and raw and hard and magnificent in that journey. So I noticed at a young age that some people, even within my own family, would have moments where I just felt like, gosh, I think we can do better than this. I think we can cultivate a sense of really of thriving in life, of happiness, yes, but of thriving, of bringing out our best. And I'm naturally, you look towards ideals and optimism and, and future thinking my strength finder, those are our top strengths of mine. <laughs> and so I asked this question of myself first is how can I live a life of greater contentment? This came as a question very specifically when I was 20. I had gone to, to the Sinai Desert and I had hiked up to the top of Mount Sinai, if any of you have ever been there, and overlooking the... Um, the sea of mountaintops and the sun was coming up. It was absolutely magnificent. And in that moment, I just had this sense. I just felt like, gosh, I am kind of trudging through life. I should be dancing through life. I, there's so much more potential. And so I made a vow in that moment that I would find my way there. And I also said to myself and out loud to God in the universe, and this time I'm not going to know the answer. So that set me on my quest. So you had an epiphany. Do you think epiphanies are overrated? Are we just as an aside, is it really, (laughs) should we all be sitting around waiting for an epiphany? If we sit around waiting for epiphany, that's a sure uh, recipe for boredom and frustration and unhappiness. I wanted to be respectful of you, but part of me was thinking, how was the peyote as you're walking up the desert hill? But then again, this is not the Southwest United States. I don't know if there was peyote (laughs) in the desert over there, but I mean, is it reasonable for people to wait for epiphanies or should we, are there steps we can, can take along the way to lead us to those kinds of insights into our own life? You know, insights come to us. We can certainly give space for them. And and in a sense, that's what I was doing when I was, I was soul searching in that time of my Mm -hmm. life. I really, I was, I had been in in the university and I was thinking, gosh, you know, I really want mentors. I really want to see how I can make a positive impact in the world. And I want people around me who are doing this as well. And so taking a step back and being in a place of beauty, sometimes that's where they can come. But I don't at all think we should chase epiphanies or also be waiting our entire lives. That sounds like misery to me. Right. If they come, great. But just like anything else, they're emergent. So, And there's no magic to an epiphany. What is an epiphany? It's just a, it's an insight. We get insights of like, oh, I'm hungry. Like, okay, great. Go eat. You know, like right, right. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this lofty sort of life-changing thing that we're going after, the ordinary. So in going after the extraordinary life, really the key is then to look for the ordinary, the beauty in the ordinary 
you have this insight in the desert and how do you turn that insight into a plan? Well, it was an orientation then for me. So it was a question that I just held and wondered about how, how could I increase my level of contentment and, and reach a level in my life where I didn't put these words on at the time, but it would be flourishing more, living my best life in a sense. I don't want to overemphasize best, what's best, just living my life in a way that feels really good. And so by holding that question then and feeling into it at different times, and then I discovered, well, gosh, I want to, uh, I was studying international relations at the time. And I thought, you know, actually, I want to go to the source of, of the problem between nations is made up of a bunch of people, of an individual. So then I felt into it. And I said, I, I want to go into psychology. I mean, specifically how I did that. I went through the college catalog <laughs> and <laughs> Economics, checked off all the classes no, that would look interesting, no. and that was psychology. <laughs> right. So you passed up sociology and management, and you got to one that sounded interesting, like a good fit. Yeah, that's, that suited me to study this question. What is the software? What can we change in our lives to make our own lives and other people's lives have a positive impact in the world? And you took that all the way. You have a PhD in psychology. Am I correct on that? Yes. When you started studying psychology as an undergrad, did you know you were going to get a PhD and how you would bring that into the world as a career? I knew that I wanted to have a positive impact in the world. That, in whatever way, suited me in my skills and strengths and preferences of lifestyle and, and otherwise. So what was fun and interesting to me. I didn't know at first, I didn't say, I'm going to get a PhD, but, you know, I, I, I might sound sort of, you know, ideas drive me, but also very practically, I thought, well, I want to teach what I learned to others. That's part of the impact. So how could I do that? Well, I want to be taken seriously. I want to learn rigor. I want to know what's science, what's opinion. I don't want to be an armchair opinionist, an armchair psychologist. I want to have science behind my beliefs. I want to be informed myself and learn from that. So then I realized it was a no-brainer. Well, I need to go get a research degree. That's a, a PhD in psychology will both bolster my ability to understand these complex phenomena and also to go out in the world in a way that will, will open doors so that I can have an impact. And today you do a lot of work with corporations, some of the top corporations in the world. When you go to talk to companies like Google and Facebook, what are they hoping that, that your work can do for their employees? Well, we know that positive cultures where people are free to bring out their best when they can offer opinions and be creative, play big, not small, then when they have intellectual liberation that they're more effective. And what are the conditions that we can create in a culture? Because I see companies as sort of laboratories for culture. What are those conditions where each individual can really bring out their best? And those are conditions with psychological safety. Those are conditions where there's natural interactions, where people have more positive emotions and inspiration and awe than defensiveness and fear and, and anger and frustration with toxic competition around their colleagues. So they're hoping to create a more positive culture, to create the conditions under which 
their employees, their leaders, everyone from the top leaders to the individual contributors can flourish um, intellectually and collectively. I worked at Facebook for a few years, and I know it to be a very intense culture of very, very high-performing and successful people. What's the correlation between happiness and success? Are happy people successful or are successful people happy? Well, there is research that um, there was a great meta-analysis done by Sonia Lubomirsky from University of California at Riverside really took on the question, what are the the correlations and the causal consequences of happiness? Free snacks in the snack room. That's a good one for short term, sure. You know, but what does it really lead to? And so there is a causal relationship between happiness and success. So success defined as performance, for example, managers' ratings of performance, as well as the individual self-report of performance, as well as the there's some metrics you know that can be measured, especially with in domains of like sales or, or something like that, those types of teams, and also financial success. So there is a causal relationship, which makes a lot of sense if we take a look back and say, oh, well, what are the actions? What are the behaviors that lead someone to be successful, you know, to have a higher performing um, individual within a, within a company setting, let's say? Well, that's in the domain of positive emotions because positive emotions are our approach emotions. They're the ones that broaden and build our perspective, as Barbara Fredrickson has really summarized in the broaden and build effect of positive emotions. And so they put us into a mental state and a physical state of arousal, of just enough arousal where we're excited, we're interested, we are engaged and flow and motivated towards finding creative and interesting solutions towards taking on complexity to being open to other people's perspectives. Uh, When we're we're under the influence of positive emotions, we are more altruistic, more willing to help. We are more willing to to step back and to consider differing perspectives, opposition, without feeling that threat and shutdown, as opposed to negative emotions like fear, anxiety, anger, frustration, disappointment. Those are going to close and narrow our perspective and let's focus on the problem, but have a difficult time removing ourselves from the problem. So like, think about it when you have something that's really bothering you. I mean, you're like hooked, you're triggered. It's really hard to think about anything else. So in the middle of the night, what do we wake up? It's like, oh, you know, that mind is very <laughs> sticky for threat. So that's at the key of it is that that's why positive emotion drives success. That's never happened to me. I've never, I've never yeah, woken yeah, myself never. up with self-created drama in the middle of the night ever, especially not in my career. Then you are definitely the one to be speaking on this podcast and not me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody, it's Paul. Yeah, I was just talking to Laura, but now I want to talk to you. If you're new to Crazy Money, and I know a lot of you are because I see the numbers, I want to ask you to do three things. Number one, if you have a second when you're done listening to this episode, please take the time to rate and review the show. You go back to the show page in your podcast app, you scroll all the way down to rate and review, and you give us some stars and you write a kind review about what you think about the show. Number two, subscribe to the show. 
so that every week as we put out a new episode, it automatically loads onto that there phone of yours. And then three, go and listen to some back episodes. I've talked to some amazing people. One of my favorite episodes was the one I recorded on February 26, 2019 with my friend Turney Duff. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Buy Side, in which he chronicles how his multi-million dollar a year job on Wall Street got derailed by his cocaine addiction and how he's rebuilt his life since recovering from all of that. He's a great, great guy, super funny, and he's got incredible stories. So take a look for that. I appreciate you being here. Hope to see you again next week. So you bring up something here related to the negativity bias, which I find very interesting. Uh, What is it and how did it evolve into our brains? The negativity bias is a tendency for all of us, despite our best efforts, to make three three over-assumptions. One is that we overestimate threat, we underestimate resources, and Three, I just said two. Three is um, we, <laughs> how many? We, <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> but the third one is sadly, we overlook opportunities. So, negatives, problems are far stickier in our brain. We will focus on them, we will think about them more in depth, we will think about them longer. The processing, the cognitive processing is far greater for problems than for safety signals. This makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. When our survival was based on our ability to avoid threat, the threats were life or death. And that's when this bias took hold in our brains and triggers the fight or flight response, fight, flight, or freeze response to keep us safe. So it's much more effective. There's tremendous survival benefit to being safe than sorry. But now that we're cube dwellers and not cave dwellers, how do we work to overcome it so we don't sabotage ourselves at work and in our relationships? First of all, is to be aware of the negativity bias and everyone's got it. I mean, what a fun kind of exercise is just take out your, your license. If you think you don't have it, take okay. out your driver's license it. and oh, my God, you know, oh, what thoughts do you have? Oh, that was a great hair day. Oh, I love that. You know, weight I'm at, the age I'm at, you know, everything will just go into, into it. That's a fun exercise I like to do with people. But the point is that we need to be aware of it so that we can counter it. The objective here is not to be Pollyannish or to go into a positive mind state necessarily, but it's simply to get accurate. So if we are trying to get as accurate as possible, then we'll most likely need a positivity offset to intentionally turn our attention away from those sticky problems and threats to possibility and and positivity. What are the factors that contribute to happiness at work? Well, we can think even a little bit more broadly of what are the factors that contribute to happiness in life. Because after all, when we walk through, whether we walk through the front door of our home or of our office building, we're the same person. Mm -hmm. So that's the view I take is that we are people, no matter where we go, the same dynamics are at play, the same psychologies are at play, the same biases, therefore, as well. So we can, um, a nice way to summarize this comes from Martin Seligman, University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And he has identified a sort of summary of the research that there are five pillars of flourishing, of true well-being and happiness. And those are, it uses the acronym PERMA. 
So P is for positive emotions. So as Barbara Fredrickson would say, having more positive emotions than negative emotions. And, you know, even the subtle positive emotions like awe or pride, that those are also important. And the E in PERMA is engagement. So most commonly known as flow from Cheek Sent Me High, Mihai mm-hmm. Cheek Sent Me High. Flow is really important at work. So having that sense of engagement. And in fact, we like work. I mean, work can be thought of as a four-letter word, but we love having challenge and bringing our skills into it. And, and as long as those are in a certain balance where the, our challenge just makes us stretch our skills and build and grow, I mean, that's learning. That's a, a tremendous source of enjoyment for us. R is relationships. So fundamentally, we are social animals. And so relationships matter. Who we work with, our coworkers, it matters. I really do a lot of work in training teams to and leaders to increase their, their psychological safety. In other words, their trust of each other, because that is the number one driver of high-performing teams. So trust research is. shows. Trust, trust is. Yeah. Yeah. That interpersonal component. So do I feel like, you know, Paul, uh, you were working on the same team. Do I feel like that you have my back? If I screw up, are you going to, you know, sideline me or criticize me in front of everyone in a meeting? You know, having that sense of safety of a team that we, I mean, real team, I mean, a sense of not me against you, of we, but we are together in this. That is crucial. And and we get tremendous challenge and joys within our relationships. We, you know, the original tribe, now the modern day tribe mm-hmm. is often our workplace. Mm-hmm. So having a sense of close, satisfying relationships in our life and at work, that might mean having good working relationships. So then going on to M, meaning having a sense that my work matters. You know, this isn't just, I'm not just a cog in the machine. There's in the service of a a greater good, even whether it's making a really beautiful product that works flawlessly to, you know, to actually going out and and solving uh, some world problem of, of whatever that might be, you know. But having a sense that there's depth to this work, it's not just superficial, it's not just senseless, brainless work, but that actually it touches my heart, mm. it touches my sense of humanity and of, of creation. That does matter. And that's also one of top five predictors of a high-performing team is having that sense of meaning. Yeah. The last domain or pillar we might say of this PERMA is accomplishment. We love to accomplish things. It kind of relates back to what I was saying in flow is having a sense of mastery. That's one of our primary motivations, a sense of mastery that we are growing, we're making progress. I mean, think about it. If you are like failing miserably, but you're like, I'm getting better, I'm getting better. That is so exciting and (laughs) and energizing for us to see improvement. Yes. It's tremendous. You didn't mention money in any of those P-E-R-M-A's. You had a chance, but you you let it go and you slipped <laughs> meaning in there. So of all the factors in job or life satisfaction, where does compensation and, and money come into it all? Okay. Well, first of all, if we think that we are being unfairly compensated, we're going to be very unhappy. Mm. We will be flat out pissed off. <laughs> when you say unfairly, do you mean relative to your coworkers, relative to the market or any of the above? 
fair is a subjective conclusion. So what feels fair is going to be different for different people. But generally, the evaluation that this is fair, given my output, that this is the reward. I am being rewarded. Mm -hmm. And it is relative to other coworkers, to my reference group. It's relative to the amount of perceived effort, the perceived value of that reward. So fairness matters a lot, more than the absolute number. Mm. Fairness is key. Mm. The second piece is with money, it's a really nice metric. It's a very concrete metric to say, how am I doing? Mm. Am I making progress? How much am I valued? You know, it's a metric that tells us things. So we overlay meaning or attribution to what we are paid. So that's another reason why it's so we gravitate towards it so much because it helps us know where we where we are, where we stack up, how we're doing. Do you think the simplicity of comparing my salary to yours leads us to improperly put more emphasis on our pay than is merited as a contributing factor to happiness? Yeah, sure. I mean, anytime we go into social comparisons, we are oversimplifying a complex situation. So the simplicity of money is also there in the danger. We can say, oh, well, you make this number and I make 10% less than you. That doesn't feel good. That's not okay. You're ahead of me. But there's so much that goes into that. There's expertise. There's context. There's sometimes luck. There's how visible the work is, how much resource. I mean, it's infinite, right? We could just go on and on with what goes into into that. But this social comparison is then pulling out in general, it's pulling out one variable, let's say, and comparing it and then saying, where do I stack up on that? With this one number, am I I ahead or behind? Am I ahead or behind? When it's a far more complex experience of compensation with that. and an appreciation for what is my value and what do I prioritize and and do I value myself or am I, am I putting all of my value on how I perceive that others are, are thinking about me? You know, it, there's layers to it, but the key is that it's oversimplifying a complex situation. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to feel appreciation at work and income is just one of those things. What would you tell someone who's in a lucrative job that they don't feel is terribly meaningful? I would ask them what's meaningful to you and how can you bring more of that into into what you're doing in your day-to-day activities. So first it starts with feeling. It's a it's a deep inquiry of what does matter to me and how can I craft my life to enable me to engage with what matters with me more, to stay connected with what matters. There's so many different ways to do that. It might be crafting the job. It might be using the the resources in a different way. It might be something else altogether where there's something else missing, maybe in that PERMA equation, where there's something in life that's feeling empty. I don't know if that answers your question. I don't believe there's one answer to that question. I think it's relevant to a lot of people who have been successful and have stayed successful, but after 20 years doing the same thing, they're like, what am I doing? You know, where's the, is this work what I was put on this earth to do? And it is a, while a luxury, it is still a meaningful existential crisis for midlife career people. 
Yeah. And I think there are a few reasons for that. One is that um, it can feel really good in the beginning to have that feedback of progress. And also, let's face it, the status around money is, is very appealing because we are social animals. It's again, going to, back to that question of how do I stack up? What's my value? Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean monetary value. I mean, how valuable am I as a person? And a lot of people will look towards external markers for that. And society feeds this too, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Power and status is better. And so we can get a lot of accolades and a lot of social attention and reinforcement by making more money, but then it can become a trap because once the novelty of that wears off. And of course, with the hedonic adaptation, as many people are familiar with, that's going to happen. Then we are pursuing this false hope that we will get satisfaction through this. And what was was very exciting at first and was feeding a sense of happiness really quickly wears off. But then context and, and external variable structures, convenience can really keep us locked in where you know now we have a mortgage and a house and a lifestyle that we are really used to and and it feels good to be respected and to be called doctor this and sir can i get you your coffee and ma'am you know blah 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 you know here's your black car waiting for you mm-hmm. but those are uh, momentary joys that we will get accustomed to and habituate to But that deeper sense of meaning requires a deeper inquiry that the initial high can actually pull us away from. We'll know that society is on our side and reinforcing the prioritization of intrinsic metrics when they release the Forbes 400 most fulfilled professionals list. That's right. I look forward to that day. It's a little psychological money humor for you. Okay, let's let's broaden the focus a little bit to life in general. Laura, quiz for you. Which of the following would make me the happiest? A prestigious job title, a big house, or a new Porsche 911 convertible? What color is the portion? Oh, that is an excellent question. I was not prepared for. I like I like those those crazy yellow ones that they come out with every few years. Oh, well, of course. Isn't happiness the color of yellow? Something like that. Yeah. 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 A million Instagram followers, a best-selling novel, or being friends with Nick Jonas. Which one of those is going to make me the happiest? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah. Next uh, question. <laughs> All right. Let's go to this one. I want to be happy, but I just don't have a lot of time. What are some happiness hacks that I can introduce into my life? Okay. Look, first of all, you have time. That's an excuse. (laughs) It's totally an excuse. You have as many days on this planet as you, as you get, who knows how many that is. So you have this moment, that's time, time and attention are most valuable resource. And so optimizing within that in a moment, we can choose. Viktor Frankl says, who is a Nazi concentration camp survivor and a psychiatrist wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Sure. I believe it also applies to women. And, <laughs> Probably, um, yeah, I think so. And he said that between a stimulus and a response, there's a space. And in that space, we have the power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. 
So by expanding that. That's asking a lot though. I mean, (laughs) come on. Yeah. It's asking a lot. This, um, you know, the pursuit of happiness and well-being is not for the lighthearted. It's a full contact sport. He's insinuating that we should actually take responsibility and ownership of the way we react to things that might not be positive. That's right. Choice. In every moment, we have an awesome opportunity. And that is to choose our response. Knowing that we are flawed human beings that are subject to things like the negativity bias, how do we increase the likelihood that in that interim, we make the choice that would be happiness optimizing? The first step is to pause and to notice that you do have a choice to get off autopilot and mindlessness and to step into an intention for conscious action, conscious choice. It's a prediction. We can't know what's going to result in a positive outcome. That's not the point. The point is to engage in the process, to be present with, and to bring forth our effort, our willingness to go for it, our courage. So to step back and say, in a moment, this can happen in milliseconds of like, wow, how could I show up as my best self here? Or if I were a role model, For my children right now, what would I want to show them? Mm. What would I want to be with them? Or how can I step into positivity and possibility and step out of a downward spiral that's just going to make things worse? So it's asking, how could I? So you pause in that moment, but are there things we can put into practice before we find ourselves in that moment that will help us recognize that moment? So practice is a, is a key piece because um, we're developing mental habits here and mind loves habits, good habits, bad habits. It's parsimonious. It's very prudent use of resources. So we develop habits, whether good or bad, and then the neuroplasticity gets involved and our brain is then literally wired for anger, wired for maybe happiness and well-being as well. And so taking practices seriously that this, as you alluded to earlier, gosh, you actually want me to do some work here? Yes. Uh, Having a mind that is healthy and, and can cultivate the conditions and choose this actions that could possibly lead to happiness and well-being, that takes practice. That takes intention. So one practice that I, I like is to turn to the positive and Ask your mind a question. I call it the three W's. Not what went wrong, what went well. (laughs) Right. What went well. And what that does is we ask this over time, it recalibrates our radar. The question you ask your mind is the answer it will find. You say what went well. Your mind goes on this searching expedition for what's right, what went well, what could go well, what do I want to go well? And the second part of this question is, and what is my role or what was my role in creating this situation outcome? So that part adds a real punch. It increases a sense of self-efficacy that I have influence over my experience. As opposed to asking whose fault is it that I don't feel the way I, I want to feel. That's right. Because that's a disempowering question. Now you've lost all power. Taking the good, what went well, that's our first step. Yep. What else we got? 
Okay. How could I is a question. It's an optimism generating question. It's a productive, constructive question where it directs the mind not to can I, that's a prediction question. That's a fortune teller's question, but how could Mm I? And what that does, another question that sets the mind on it in a direction of looking towards the positive goal, not the negative target, you, I'm a skier, you know, I know, and with any sport, when I'm dropping into a very steep shoot, if I'm looking at the rocks, that's exactly what I'm going to hit. <laughs> but if I keep my eye on that small, steep path that I need to go down in order to not fall off the cliff, then that is where my body will flow into, will follow. So positive target. Then the second is looking for multiple pathways that would be potentially effective in bringing you towards that goal. And the third is, um, I like to think of things in three steps so we can remember them, (laughs) is that getting supports. You know, if we're going to do hard things, we need to support ourselves. We need to set ourselves up for success. So who could help me? Who can I enlist in this? An accountability buddy? What technology can I use? Do I need to learn from someone? Where are some role models that I can look for positive examples? How can I equip myself with books, TED Talks, learnings, skill sets, guides that can help me build this skill set that I will need to reach this positive target? So I call that the GPS, Goals, Pathways, Supports. Use your GPS towards a hard problem or solution that you're looking for. So that's one more. And third, I'll give you one more bonus round, is to cultivate a sense of mindful presence. Mindfulness gets a lot of play, and it's, I think it's highly misconstrued. How would you define mindfulness? Mindfulness, simple definition, is presence, get present. Mm-hmm. But I will give you a different, a little bit more complex, but I think is more helpful, And that is noticing new things. It's an active state of mind where you're noticing new things. And this comes from Ellen Langer, who's actually a social psychologist at Harvard, who I studied with and did my dissertation with because I chose her, because she simplifies this incredibly powerful, optimal state of being into just three actions, which is being open to your experience, actually opening your eyes and noticing, Mm -hmm. not closed-minded. Second is, or taking different perspectives. So actually looking, noticing, considering right, wrong, up, down, sideways, forward. And the third is then revising, like doing something, actually learning and growing from that. So in a moment, we can do that in just a snap is to notice new things, get curious. And if we open our mind take different perspectives and are willing to then integrate that information. I mean, how could we not do everything better from work to life, to relationships? For sure. You talk a lot about work situations in the work that you do. And yet, as I was reading and watching a lot of your material, I was like, this is really relevant to marriage and relationships and family and all that stuff. Yes, absolutely. Again, we are people, we are individuals who bring our psychology and our our dynamics into every situation we enter into, every relationship we touch, whether it's with our children or with our boss. If we are prone to shaming and blaming, we will do that. We will bring that in everywhere we go. 
and um, it'll show up as being highly critical, perhaps, of other coworkers or feeling very defended and competing, proving ourselves in the workplace and posturing. No one likes to be around that. Or with our partner or spouse of being highly critical, unappreciative, looking at only the flaws, not being generous, Mm. Um, having an emotional generosity. We can have more of an emotional generosity and a courage to have difficult conversations. That's going to serve us in everywhere we go. Yeah. I could work on a lot of that stuff. I mean, I know we all could, but uh, anyway, it's one of the things I could work on. Laura, as I was reading a few of the happiness habits that are important for us to live a happy life, connections with other human beings and relationships, as you mentioned before, are super important Right now, we're going through a time where each of us, uh, even though we're all isolated to different degrees, we're all more isolated than we've ever been. How do we maintain happiness during isolation? Well, first of all, it takes some mental discipline. So we could, and I use that word discipline intentionally, happiness requires discipline, is that we could let our minds run wild with the fear, with the oversimplifying the problems and pointing and looking for an enemy, looking for, for who's responsible, who's to blame, instead of looking for solutions. So that's a choice. Mm. It's a choice of where we put our attention, where we're going to direct our efforts. We could go into deep distraction of avoidance. And I hear, uh, I hear that coming up a lot, whether it's having a third glass of wine every single night and bottles are just stacking up in your recycling <laughs> bin. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm sure. Or going to food, you know, food and, and beverage that I've heard recently that alcohol sales were up 55% the past month or, you know, since uh, most of this social isolation has happened mm-hmm. and binge watching um, Netflix every night and every day and social media vortex. So we could go into that or we could stop and say, I'm drawn to this. I feel like having another glass. I feel, but wait. Stimulus response, there's a space. I have a choice here. What would be a healthy, productive response for me to take right now that would cultivate a greater level of well being and be engaging and really feed me in my a deeper sense of my well being rather than just feeding my anxious mind? Mm-hmm. And so that's an important piece. And so to notice that some people in isolation are whether they're living alone or with their families are feeling quite lonely and suffering and other people who are living alone and haven't been in contact with anyone for a month and a half or more are thriving. And why is that? Some people who are with their, their partners and and living at home with their families are saying, Oh my gosh, this has given us a chance to actually be with each other and enjoy each other and create new rituals and and experiences with each other and actually bond and get to know each other in ways that we just, we've been living under the same roof, but don't actually know each other at a deeper level. Having conversations that there just wasn't time for or that this is brought up and, you know, deeper conversations around what's meaningful what do you want in life what could what can you learn from this you know these deeper inquiries that sometimes don't happen because we're so focused on on the day to day some families are doing that others are bickering and fighting and saying oh my 
God, I can't wait for this to be over so I don't have to see you anymore. <laughs> and what about connecting with with other people uh, who aren't in your home? I mean, as much as I love my time with my kids and there's been a lot of it, how do I maintain the friendships that are also a source of richness in my life? One of the most beautiful things that I've seen in this is that actually in many ways, the sense of connection in my life, certainly, and I've heard other people say as well, has increased even though our distance has gotten greater, our sense of closeness and bonding has also gotten greater because there are these deeper conversations, the more frequent contact perhaps. And I know that some people are just trying to stay above water. And so that is not their experience. You know, the thing with this pandemic is that people have very different experiences in it and it, it presses upon the, the weak points in the system. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, you know, the, the pain points get more painful, but there's an opportunity in that say, oh, okay, interesting. So that sense of connection, I mean, finding ways that are meaningful, maybe it's um, writing, actually writing and sending a, a card or having a video chat instead of a, a phone chat, which so many people are doing, right? Yep. So we're getting creative. I mean, the creativity that is coming around how to connect is just phenomenal. And I think that is going to be one of the lasting positive impacts of this pandemic is that we are having to get more creative, more conscious about how we are connecting and the importance of connection. For sure. I know that the Zoom calls I've had with old friends have been as, as weird as it is to think that's what you got to go do. Doing them has been highly satisfying and it's been a lot of fun to reconnect. Laura, your work is so interesting and gosh, it seems so logical and yet so impactful, both if you do it and if you don't do it, you know? And so where can our listeners find out more about your work? On my website, delazana.com. To make that simple, if you're listening to this, you can go to choosinghappiness.com. So a previous website and it'll direct you towards delazana.com. So I offer executive coaching. I offer workshops and trainings in companies, whether that's a keynote or a two-day training. I, I do it all all over the world. And so, although we may not be doing that now, virtual workshops are surprisingly effective. Speaking of creativity <laughs> and how go. to really, the challenge brings in our invention, right? Just like that old saying. So, necessity drives innovation an invention. And so we're finding ways to do these trainings in the way that is far more engaging than we ever have before online because of this necessity. So delazana.com is where you can find my work, you can find my contact information, and I love working with leaders to empower them to bring out their best, to bring out their best with others so that everyone, whether it's a six person company or a 60,000 person company or a 600,000 person company, I've worked with all of those levels, can elevate the entire company to bring out their best to perform at high levels. And ultimately, as Seth Golden would say, to create art. That's great. And you can do it in your relationships too, create art in your relationships. Yeah, that's right. Dr. Laura Delzana, thank you so much for joining us. I've truly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Paul. And I appreciate you bringing me on to your podcast and the good work that you are doing. Thank you, Laura, so much for joining us today. The stuff you work on is so impactful. It's deceptively simple and so easy to forget. So I'm glad you were here with us today to remind us to be grateful, to ask ourselves what went well, 
and to look for joy in the everyday. Hey, everybody, next week, I have a killer interview for you with a guy named Rabbi Daniel Lappin. We're going to talk about his book, Thou Shall Prosper. Daniel is, Rabbi Lappin, I should say, is a highly spirited, highly intelligent, passionate defender of capitalism and our duty to engage in business with our friends. I cannot wait for you to hear it. I had a great time talking to him, and I know you will enjoy the conversation as well. Before I take off, I want to encourage you to click on the link in the show notes to bookshop.org. It's the Crazy Money Bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find Laura's books and the books of all Crazy Money guests that have been on so far. We get a slight commission if you decide to buy something there. And as importantly, you'll be supporting independent bookstores all over the country because bookshop.org is a consortium of indie bookstores that has gotten together to create an online platform that funds not only their operations online, but their brick and mortar operations as well. So check it out, bookshop.org. Thank you very much for joining us. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.